There are various names by which reference is made to the Lord Jesus Christ. These names give us insight into different aspects of the Lord's atoning mission. Take, for example, the title Savior. We all have a sense of what it means to be saved because each of us has been saved at some time from something. As children, my sister and I were playing in a river in a small boat when we unwisely left the safe area of play and found ourselves being propelled by the current to unknown perils downstream. In response to our cries, our father ran to the rescue, saving us from the dangers of the river. When I think of saving, I think of that experience. The title Redeemer provides similar insights. To redeem is to buy or to buy back. As a legal matter, property is redeemed by paying off the mortgages or other liens on it. In Old Testament times, the Law of Moses provided different ways that servants and property could be freed or redeemed by the payment of money. A prominent scriptural use of the word redeem concerns the delivery of the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. After that deliverance, Moses told them, Because the Lord loved you, hath he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The theme of Jehovah redeeming the people of Israel from bondage is repeated many times in the scriptures. Often this is done to remind the people of the Lord's goodness in delivering the children of Israel from the Egyptians. But it is also done to teach them that there would be another, more important redemption for Israel. Lehi taught, And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. The psalmist wrote, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. The Lord declared through Isaiah, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. The redemption referred to in these three scriptures, of course, is the atonement of Jesus Christ. This is the plenteous redemption provided by our loving God. Unlike the redemptions under the law of Moses or in modern legal arrangements, this redemption does not come by corruptible things as silver or gold. In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. President John Taylor taught that because of the Redeemer's sacrifice, the debt is paid, the redemption made, the covenant fulfilled, justice satisfied, the will of God done, and all power is given into the hands of the Son of God. The effects of this redemption include the overcoming of physical death for all of God's children. That is, temporal death is overcome and all will be resurrected. Another aspect of this redemption by Christ is the victory over spiritual death. Through His suffering and death, Christ paid for the sins of all mankind on condition of individual repentance. Thus, if we repent, we can be forgiven of our sins, the price having been paid by our Redeemer. This is good news for all of us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those who have strayed significantly from the paths of righteousness desperately need this redemption, and if they fully repent, it is theirs to claim. But those who have worked hard to live good lives also desperately need this redemption, for none can get to the presence of the Father without Christ's help. 
Thus, this loving redemption allows the laws of justice and mercy to be satisfied in the lives of all who repent and follow Christ. How great, how glorious, how complete redemption's grand design where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine. President Boyd K. Packer taught, There is a Redeemer, a mediator, who stands both willing and able to appease the demands of justice and extend mercy to those who are penitent. The scriptures, literature, and the experiences of life are filled with stories of redemption. Through Christ, people can and do change their lives and obtain redemption. I love stories of redemption. I have a friend who did not follow the teachings of the Church in his youth. When he was a young adult, he realized what he had been missing by not living the gospel. He repented, changed his life, and devoted himself to righteous living. One day, years after our youthful association, I met him in the temple. The gospel light shone in his eyes, and I sensed that he was a devoted member of the Church trying to fully live the gospel. His is a story of redemption. I once interviewed a woman for baptism who had been guilty of a very grievous sin. During the interview, I asked if she understood that she could, not, could, that she could never repeat that sin. With deep emotion in her eyes and in her voice, she said, Oh, President, I could never do that sin again. That is the reason I want to be baptized, to cleanse me from the effects of that terrible sin. Hers is a story of redemption. As I have visited state conferences and other meetings in recent years, I have carried President Monson's call to rescue the less active members of the Church. At one state conference, I told a story of a less active member who returned to full activity after his bishop and other leaders visited him in his home, told him he was needed, and called him to serve in the ward. The man in the story not only accepted the call, but changed his life and habits and became fully active in the Church. A friend of mine was in the congregation to which I told that story. His countenance visibly changed as the story was told. He sent me an email the next day telling me that his emotional reaction to the story was because his father-in-law's story of returning to activity in the Church was very similar to the one I had told. He told me that as a result of a similar visit by a bishop and an invitation to serve in the Church, his father-in-law reevaluated his life and his testimony made major changes in his life, and accepted the call. That reactivated man now has 88 descendants who are active members of the Church. At a meeting a few days later, I told both stories. The next day, I received another email that began, That's my father's story, too. That email from a stake president told how his father was invited to serve in the Church even though he had not been active and had some habits that needed changing. He accepted the invitation and, in the process, repented, eventually served as a stake president and then a mission president, and laid the foundation for his posterity to be faithful members of the Church. A few weeks later, I told all three stories in another stake conference. After the meeting, a man came to me and told me that was not his father's story. It was his story. He told me of the events that led him to repent and come back to full involvement in the Church. And so it went. As I carried the call to rescue the less active, I saw and heard story after story of people who responded to invitations to come back and change their lives. I heard story after story of redemption. Although we can never repay the Savior what He paid on our behalf, the plan of redemption calls for our best efforts to fully repent and do the will of God. 
the Apostle Orson F. Whitney wrote, Savior, Redeemer of my soul, whose mighty hand hath made me whole, whose wondrous power hath raised me up and filled with sweet my bitter cup, what tongue my gratitude can tell, O gracious God of Israel? Never can I repay thee, Lord, but I can love thee. Thy pure word hath it not been my one delight, my joy by day, my dream by night? Then let my lips proclaim it still, and all my life reflect thy will. I bear my testimony of the power of Christ's atonement. When we repent and come to him, we can receive all the, all the blessings of eternal life that we may do so. Receiving our own story of redemption is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A milestone in the life of a missionary is his or her final or exit interview with the mission president. At the heart of the interview will be a discussion of what seems to be a lifetime of memorable experiences and key lessons that have been gained in just 18 to 24 months. While many of these experiences and lessons may be common to missionary service, each mission is unique with challenges and opportunities that stretch and test us according to our particular needs and personalities. Long before leaving our earthly home to serve a full-time mission, we left heavenly parents to fulfill our mortal mission. We have a Father in heaven who knows us, our strengths and weaknesses, our abilities and potential. He knows which mission president and companions and which members and investigators we need in order to become the missionary, the husband and father, and priesthood holder we are capable of becoming. Prophets, seers, and revelators assigned missionaries under the direction and influence of the Holy Ghost. Inspired mission presidents direct transfers every six weeks and quickly learn that the Lord knows exactly where He wants each missionary to serve. A few years ago, Elder Javier Misiego from Madrid, Spain, was serving a full-time mission in Arizona. At that time, his mission call to the United States appeared somewhat unusual, as most young men from Spain were being called to serve in their own country. At the conclusion of a stake fireside, where he and his companion had been invited to participate, Elder Misiego was approached by a less active member of the Church. Brought by a friend, it was the first time this man had been inside a chapel in years. Elder Misiego was asked if he might know a Jose Misiego in Madrid. When Elder Misiego responded that his father's name was Jose Misiego, the man excitedly asked a few more questions to confirm that this was the Jose Misiego. When it was determined that they were speaking about the same man, this less active member began to weep. Your father was the only person I baptized during my entire mission, he explained, and described how his mission had been, in his mind, a failure. He attributed his years of inactivity to some feelings of inadequacy and concern, believing that he had somehow let the Lord down. Elder Misiego then described what the supposed failure of a missionary meant to his family. He told him that his father, baptized as a young single adult, had married in the temple, that Elder Misiego was the fourth of six children, that all three boys and a sister had served full-time missions, that all were active in the Church, and that all who were married had been sealed in the temple. The less active returned missionary 
began to sob. Through his efforts, he now learned, scores of lives had been blessed, and the Lord had sent an elder from Madrid, Spain, all the way to a fireside in Arizona to let him know that he had not been a failure. The Lord knows where he wants each missionary to serve. In whatever manner the Lord may choose to bless us during the course of a mission, blessings of missionary service are not designed to end when we are released by our stake president. Your mission is a training ground for life. The experiences, lessons, and testimony obtained through faithful service are meant to provide a gospel-centered foundation that will last throughout mortality and into the eternities. However, for the blessings to continue after the mission, there are conditions that must be met. In the Doctrine and Covenants we read, For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof. This principle is taught in the story of the Exodus. After receiving his commission from the Lord, Moses returned to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of captivity. Plague after plague failed to secure their freedom, leading to the tenth and final plague. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. For protection against the destroyer, the Lord instructed his people to offer a sacrifice, a lamb without blemish, and to collect the blood from the sacrifice. They were then to take of the blood and apply it to the entrance of each home, the two side posts and the upper door post, with this promise, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. The children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded. They offered the sacrifice, collected the blood, and applied it to their homes. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Moses and his people, according to the promise of the Lord, were protected. The blood used by the Israelites, symbolic of the Savior's future atonement, was a product of the sacrifice they had offered. Nevertheless, the sacrifice and the blood alone would not have been sufficient to obtain the promised blessing. Without the application of the blood to the doorpost, the sacrifice would have been in vain. President Monson has taught, Missionary work is difficult. It taxes one's energies. It strains one's capacity. It demands one's best effort. No other labor requires longer hours or greater devotion or such sacrifice and fervent prayer. As a result of that sacrifice, we return from our missions with our own gifts—the gift of faith, the gift of testimony, the gift of understanding the role of the Spirit, the gift of daily gospel study, the gift of having served our Savior. Gifts carefully packaged in worn scriptures and tattered copies of Preach My Gospel in missionary journals and grateful hearts. However, like the children of Israel, the ongoing blessings associated with missionary service require application after the sacrifice. A few years ago, while Sister Waddell and I presided over the Spain-Barcelona mission, I would extend one last assignment to each missionary during their final interview. As they returned home, they were asked to immediately take time to consider the lessons and gifts provided to them by a generous Father in Heaven. They were asked to prayerfully list and consider how to best apply those lessons in post-mission life—lessons that would impact every facet of their lives—education and career choice, marriage and children, future Church service, and, most importantly, who they would continue to become and their continued development as disciples of Jesus Christ. 
There is no returned missionary for whom it is too late to consider the lessons obtained through faithful service and to apply them more diligently. As we do so, we will feel the influence of the Spirit more fully in our lives, our families will be strengthened, and we will draw closer to our Savior and Father in Heaven. In a previous General Conference, Elder L. Tom Perry extended this invitation. I call on you, returned missionaries, to rededicate yourselves, to become reinfused with the desire and spirit of missionary service. I call on you to look the part, to be the part, and to act the part of a servant of our Father in Heaven. I want to promise you there are great blessings in store for you if you continue to press forward with the zeal you once possessed as a full-time missionary. Now, to the young men who have yet to serve a full-time mission, I share President Monson's counsel from last October. I repeat what prophets have long taught, that every worthy, able young man should prepare to serve a mission. Missionary service is a priesthood duty and obligation the Lord expects of us who have been given so very much. Just as with missionaries past and present, the Lord knows you and has a mission experience prepared for you. He knows your mission president and his wonderful wife who will love you as their own children and who will seek inspiration and direction on your behalf. He knows each of your companions and what you will learn from them. He knows each area in which you will labor, the members you will meet, the people you will teach, and the lives you will impact for eternity. Through your devoted service and willing sacrifice, your mission will become holy ground to you. You will witness the miracle of conversion as the Spirit works through you to touch the hearts of those you teach. Now, As you prepare to serve, there is much to do. Becoming an effective servant of the Lord will require more than being set apart, putting on a name tag, or entering a missionary training center. It is a process that begins long before you are referred to as elder. 1. Arrive on your mission with your own testimony of the Book of Mormon, obtained through study and prayer. The Book of Mormon is powerful evidence of the divinity of Christ. It is also proof of the Restoration through the Prophet Joseph Smith. As a missionary, you must first have a personal testimony that the Book of Mormon is true. This witness of the Holy Ghost will become a central focus of your teaching. Second, arrive on your mission worthy of the companionship of the Holy Ghost. In the words of President Ezra Taft Benson, the Spirit is the most important single element of this work. With the Spirit magnifying your call, you can do miracles for the Lord in the mission field. Without the Spirit, you will never succeed, regardless of your talent and ability. Third, arrive on your mission ready to work. Your success as a missionary will be measured primarily by your commitment to find, teach, baptize, and confirm. You will be expected to work effectively every day, doing your best to bring souls to Christ. I repeat Elder M. Russell Ballard's invitation given to a previous group of young men preparing to serve. We look to you, my young brethren of the Aaronic Priesthood. We need you. Like Helaman's 2,000 stripling warriors, you are also the spirit sons of God, and you too can be endowed with power to build up and defend His kingdom. We need you to make sacred covenants just as they did. We need you to be meticulously obedient and faithful, just as they were. As you accept this invitation, you will learn a great lesson, as did Elder Misiego and all who have faithfully served, returned, and applied. You will learn that the words of our Prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, are true. The missionary opportunity of a lifetime is yours. The blessings of eternity await you. Yours is the privilege to be not spectators 
but participants on the stage of priesthood service. I testify that this is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Elder Holland, sign me up. In a recent training session for general authorities, President Thomas S. Monson emphasized anew the duties and opportunities for Aaronic priesthood bearers. It is in the spirit of that instruction that I address you. Duty, properly carried out, determines the destiny of peoples and nations. So fundamental is the principle of duty that priesthood bearers are admonished. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. President Monson explains, The call of duty can come quietly as we, hold the priesthood, we who hold the priesthood respond to assignments we receive. It is your duty, first of all, to learn what the Lord wants, and then by the power and strength of His holy priesthood to magnify your calling in the presence of your fellows in such a way that the people will be glad to follow you. Speaking of His duty, our Lord said, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Because Jesus Christ performed his duty, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Brethren, this is the standard we are to follow. It has been my experience that you who serve as deacons, teachers, and priests are as willing, reliable, and capable in doing your duty as we expect you to be. We admire you. Your vitality is infectious. Your abilities astounding. Your association invigorating. You and the Aaronic Priesthood office you hold are essential to Heavenly Father's work with His children and the preparation of this earth for the second coming of His Holy Son. Our vision of you and your duty looks beyond your age. Paul spoke of you, saying, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. To men of old there came in time the priesthood named for Aaron. Through Levites, priests, and prophets, too, it served to bless God's children. Then came the Savior of the world and sought out one named John to be baptized by this same power and mark salvation's dawn. In latter days, this selfsame power was again restored to earth that gospel truths from first to last might in one's soul find birth. Aaronic priesthood, Truth sublime in preparation come, that redemption might be had through God's beloved Son. And he who ministers these powers, tis not a mere boy that can. With priesthood mantle on him fixed, we say, Behold the man. The power and authority of the Aaronic priesthood is to hold the keys of the ministering of angels and to administer in outward ordinances the letter of the gospel, 
the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins agreeable to the covenants and commandments. President Boyd K. Packer has observed, We have done very well at distributing the authority of the priesthood. We have priesthood authority planted nearly everywhere. But distributing the authority of the priesthood has raced, I think, ahead of distributing the power of the priesthood. For the everlasting welfare of God's children, this must be remedied. Our prophet has told us how this can be done. President Monson said, I want to see the power of the priesthood strengthened. I want to see this strength and power diffused through the entire body of the priesthood, reaching from the head down to the least and most humble deacon in the Church. Every man should seek for and enjoy the revelations of God, the light of heaven shining in his soul, and giving unto him knowledge concerning his duties, concerning that portion of the work that devolves upon him in his priesthood. What can a deacon, teacher, or priest do to receive the spirit of revelation and magnify his calling? He can live so as to enjoy the cleansing, sanctifying, and illuminating power of the Holy Ghost. The importance of this is found in these words from Alma. Now I say unto you that this is the order after which I am called to preach unto the rising generation that they must repent and be born again. When one is born again, his heart is changed. He has no appetite for things evil or unclean. He feels a deep and abiding love for God. He wants to be good, to serve others, and to keep the commandments. President Joseph F. Smith described his experience with this mighty change. The feeling that came over me was that of pure peace, of love, and of light. I felt in my soul that if I had sinned, it had been forgiven me, that I was indeed cleansed from sin. My heart was touched, and I felt that I would not injure the smallest insect beneath my feet. I felt as if I wanted to do good everywhere, to everybody, and to everything. I felt a newness of life, a newness of desire to do that which was right. There was not one particle of desire for evil left in my soul. I was but a little boy, it is true, but this is the influence that came upon me, and I know it was from God and was and ever has been a living witness to me of my acceptance of the Lord. So we call upon you, wonderful young brethren, to diligently strive to be born again. Pray for this mighty change in your life. Study the scriptures. Desire more than all else to know God and to become like His Holy Son. Enjoy your youth, but put away childish things. Shun profane and foolish chatter. Flee all evil. Avoid contention. Repent where needed. This will help you rise to the noble stature of your manhood, the qualities of courage, trustworthiness, humility, faith, and goodness will be yours. Friends will admire you. Parents will praise you. Brethren in the, in the priesthood will depend on you. And the young women will adore you. 
and become even better because of you. God will honor you and endow your priesthood service with power from on high. The rest of us will do our part. As parents and grandparents, we will prepare you for more valiant service in the kingdom of God. As your brethren, we will be examples for you to emulate. We will increase the strength of your quorums. We will sustain your quorum presidencies as they exercise their presiding keys. We will provide you opportunity to fully shoulder the duties of the Aaronic priesthood and to magnify your calling therein. Through your ministry, great blessings will come to the Church. Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. You can do so as well. As you speak by the power of the Holy Ghost and administer the sacred emblems of the sacrament, men and women, boys and girls, will strive to repent, to increase their faith in Christ, and to have the Holy Spirit with them always. As you fast and collect fast offerings, members will be moved to pattern their works after the Savior. The Lord cared for the poor, the downtrodden, and He beckoned, Come, follow me. Your service in caring for the less fortunate engages us in His holy work and helps us to retain the forgiveness for our own past sins. As you visit the house of each member, be not fearful nor bashful. The Holy Ghost will supply you in the very moment the words to say, the testimony to bear, the service to render. Your diligent efforts to watch over the Church always will be fruitful. Your unpretentious manner will disarm the most unbelieving heart and loosen the adversary's grip. Your invitation to others to come to Church with you, to partake of the sacrament with you, and to serve with you will become a welcoming balm for those lost in the shadows where the gospel light is but a dim ember or glows not at all. O oh, my beloved young brethren, neglect not the gift that is in thee which you received when the Aaronic priesthood was conferred and you were ordained. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Be thou partakers of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath called us with an holy calling which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Our beloved prophet has called you to the colors. We salute you, pray for you, rejoice in serving with you, and give thanks to God for the power of your saving ministry. I bear witness, God is our eternal Father and dwells in yonder heavens. Jesus the Christ is God's holy Son, the Redeemer of the world. And you, faithful bearers of the Aaronic priesthood, are His emissaries on the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the spirit of that remarkably stirring and beautiful hymn, and with Elder Hinckley's eloquent invocation in my heart, I wish to speak rather candidly tonight, brethren, 
And I include in that candor the young men of the Aaronic Priesthood. When we rehearse the grandeur of Joseph Smith's first vision, we sometimes gloss over the menacing confrontation that came just prior to it, a confrontation intended to destroy the boy if possible, but in any case to block the revelation that was to come. We don't talk about the adversary any more than we have to, and I don't like talking about him at all. But the experience of young Joseph reminds us of what every man, including every young man, in this audience needs to remember. Number one, Satan or Lucifer or the father of lies or call him what you will is real, the very personification of evil. His motives are in every case malicious, and he convulses at the appearance of redeeming light at the very thought of truth. Number two, he is eternally opposed to the love of God, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the work of peace and salvation. He will fight against these whenever and wherever he can. He knows he'll be defeated and cast out in the end, but he is determined to take down with him as many others as he possibly can. So what are some of the devil's tactics in this contest when eternal life is at stake? Here again, the experience in the sacred grove is instructive. Joseph recorded that in an effort to oppose all that lay ahead, Lucifer exerted, quote, such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. As President Packer taught this morning, Satan cannot directly take a life. That is one of the many things he cannot do. But apparently, his effort to stop the work will be reasonably well served if he can just bind the tongue of the faithful. Brethren, if that is the case, I am looking tonight for men young and old who care enough about this battle between good and evil to sign on and speak up. We are at war, and for these next few minutes, I want to be a one-man recruiting station. Do I need to hum a few bars of We Are All Enlisted? You know, the line about We Are Waiting Now for Soldiers Who Volunteer? Of course, the great thing about this call to arms is that we ask not for volunteers to fire a rifle or throw a hand grenade. No, we want battalions who will take as their weapons every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. So I'm looking tonight for missionaries who will not voluntarily bind their tongues but will, with the Spirit of the Lord and the power of their priesthood, open their mouths and speak miracles. Such speech, the early brethren taught, would be the means by which faith's mightiest works have been and will be performed. I especially ask the men of the Aaronic priesthood to sit up and take notice. And for you, let me mix in an athletic analogy. 
This is a life and death contest we're in, young men. And so I'm going to get in your face a little, nose to nose, just enough fire to singe your eyebrows a little, the way coaches do when the game is close and victory means everything. And with the game on the line, what this coach is telling you is that to play in this match, some of you have to be more morally clean than you now are. In this battle between good and evil, you cannot play for the adversary whenever temptation comes along and then expect to suit up for the Savior at temple and mission time as if nothing has happened. That, my young friends, you cannot do. God will not be mocked. So we have a dilemma tonight, you and I. It is that there are thousands of Aaronic priesthood-aged young men already on the records of this church who constitute our pool of candidates for future missionary service. But the challenge is to have those deacons, teachers, and priests stay active enough and worthy enough to be ordained elders and serve as missionaries. So we need young men already on the team to stay on it and stop dribbling out of bounds just when you need to get in the game and play your hearts out. In almost all athletic contests of which I know, there are lines drawn on the floor or on the field within which every participant must stay in order to compete. Well, the Lord has drawn lines of worthiness for those called to labor with him in this work. No missionary can be unrepentant of sexual transgression or profane language or pornographic indulgence and then expect to challenge others to repent of those very things. You cannot do that. The Spirit will not be with you, and the words will choke in your throat as you speak them. You cannot travel down what Lehi called forbidden paths and expect to guide others to the straight and narrow one. It can't be done. But there's an answer to this challenge for you every bit as much as there is for that investigator to whom you'll go. Whoever you are, And whatever you've done, you can be forgiven. Every one of you young men can leave behind any transgression with which you may struggle. It is the miracle of forgiveness. It is the miracle of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot do it without an active commitment to the gospel. And you cannot do it without repentance where it is needed. I am asking you young men to be active in the church and to be clean. If required, I am asking you to get active and get clean. Now, brethren, we speak boldly to you because anything more subtle doesn't seem to work. We speak boldly because Satan is a real being set on destroying you. And you face his influence at a younger and younger age. So we grab you by the lapels and shout 
as forcefully as we know how, hark the sound of battle sounding loudly and clear. Come join the ranks. Come join the ranks. My young friends, we need tens of thousands of more missionaries in the months and years that lie ahead. And they must come from an increased percentage of the Aaronic priesthood who will be ordained, active, clean, and worthy to serve. To those of you who have served or are now serving, we thank you for the good you have done and for the lives that you have touched. Bless you. We also recognize that there are some who have hoped all their lives to serve missions. But for health or other reasons or impediments beyond their control, they cannot do so. We publicly and proudly salute this group. We know of your desires and we applaud your devotion. You have our love and our admiration. You are on the team and you always will be, even as you are honorably excused from full-time service. But we need the rest of you. Now, you brethren of the Melchizedek priesthood, don't smile and settle back into the comfort of your seats. I'm not through here. <laughs> we need thousands of more couples serving in the missions of the church. Every mission president pleads for them. Everywhere they serve, our couples bring a maturity to the work that no number of 19-year-olds, however good they are, can provide. To encourage more couples to serve, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve have made one of the boldest and most generous moves seen in missionary work in the last 50 years. In May of this year, priesthood leaders in the field received a notice that housing costs for couples, and we speak only of housing costs, would be supplemented by church missionary funds if the cost exceeds a predetermined amount per month. What a blessing! This is heaven-sent assistance toward the single largest expense that our couples face on their missions. The brethren have also determined that couple missions can be for six or twelve months, as well as the traditional eighteen or twenty-four. In another wonderful gesture, Permission is given for couples at their own expense to return home briefly for critical family events. And stop worrying that you're going to have to knock on doors or keep the same schedule as the 19-year-olds. We don't ask you to do that. We have a host of other things that you can do with a great deal of latitude in how you do them. Brethren, for good and sufficient health, family, or economic reasons, we realize some of you may not be able to go just now or perhaps ever. But with a little planning, many of you can go. Bishops and stake presidents, discuss this need in your councils and conferences. Sit on the stand in your meetings and prayerfully look into the congregation for the impressions about those who should receive a call. Then counsel with them and help them set a date for service. 
Brethren, when that happens, tell your wives that if you can leave your recliner and the remote control for a few short months, they can leave the grandchildren. Those little darlings will be just fine, and I promise you, you will do things for them in the service of the Lord that worlds without end you could never do if you stayed home to hover over them. What greater gift could grandparents give their posterity than to say by deed as well as word, in this family we serve missions? Missionary work isn't the only thing we need to do in this big, wide, wonderful church. But almost everything else we need to do depends on people first hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and coming into the faith. Surely that is why Jesus' final charge to the twelve was just that basic, to go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Then and only then can the rest of the blessings of the gospel fully come. Family solidarity, youth programs, priesthood promises, ordinances flowing right up to the temple. But as Nephi testified, none of that can come until one has entered into the gate with all that there is to do along the path to eternal life, we need a lot more missionaries opening that gate and helping people through it. From every man, young and old, who bears the priesthood, I ask for a stronger and more devoted, devoted voice, a voice not only against evil and him who is the personification of it, but a voice for good, a voice for the gospel, a voice for God. Brethren of all ages, unbind your tongues and watch your words work wonders in the lives of those who are only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. Haste to the battle quick to the field. Truth is our helmet, buckler and shield. Stand by our colors. Proudly they wave. We're joyfully, joyfully marching to our home. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Master. Amen. President Monson, we're all thrilled with the exciting news of some new temples. Especially it was exciting for my many, many relatives in the state of Wyoming. <laughs> the Church does something throughout the world when a new temple is built that is fairly common tradition in the United States and Canada. We hold an open house. During the weeks just prior to the dedication of a new temple, we open the doors and invite local government and religious leaders local members of the Church, and persons of other faith to come and tour our newly constructed temple. These are wonderful events that help people unfamiliar with the Church learn more about it 
Nearly everyone who visits a new temple marvels at both its exterior and interior beauty. They are impressed by the craftsmanship and attention to detail in every feature of a temple. Moreover, many of the visitors feel something unique and special as they are guided through an undedicated temple. These are common responses of visitors to our open houses, but they are not the most common response. What impresses more visitors than anything else is the members of the Church they meet at our open houses. They leave forever impressed with their hosts, the Latter-day Saints. The Church is receiving more attention across the world than ever before. Members of the media write and talk about the Church every day, reporting on its many activities. Many of the most prominent news outlets in the United States regularly discuss the Church or its members. These discussions extend across the globe as well. The Church also attracts the attention of the Internet, which, as you know, has dramatically changed the way people share information. At all times of the day across the entire world, the Church and its teachings are being discussed on the Internet, on blogs, on social networks, by people who have never written for a newspaper or a magazine. They are making videos and sharing them online. These are ordinary people, both members of our faith and of other faiths, who are talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Changes in the way we communicate partly explains why we, the Mormons, are more visible than ever. But the Church is always growing and moving forward. More people have members of the Church for neighbors and friends, and there are prominent members of the Church in government, in business, in entertainment, in education, and everywhere else, it seems. Even those who are not members of the Church have noticed this, and they wonder what is happening. It is wonderful that so many are now aware of the Church and the Latter-day Saints. While the Church is becoming more visible, there are still many people who do not understand it. Some have been taught to be suspicious of the Church, to operate under negative stereotypes about the Church without questioning their source and validity. There is also a great deal of misinformation and confusion about what the Church is and what it stands for. This has been true since the time of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith wrote in his history, in part, to disabuse the public mind and put all inquirers after truth in possession of the facts. It is true that there will always be those who will distort the truth and deliberately misrepresent the teachings of the Church. But the majority of these, with questions about the Church, simply want to understand. These are fair-minded people who are generally curious about us. The growing visibility and reputation of the Church presents some remarkable opportunities to us as its members. We can help disabuse the public mind and correct misinformation when we are portrayed as something we are not. More importantly, though, we can share who we are. There are 
number of things that we can do, that you can do, to advance an understanding of the Church. If we do it with the same spirit and conduct ourselves in the same way as we do when we host a temple open house, our friends and our neighbors will come to understand us better. Their suspicions will evaporate. Negative stereotypes will disappear, and they will begin to understand the Church as it really is. Let me suggest a few ideas of what we can do. First, we must be bold in our declaration of Jesus Christ. We want others to know that we believe He is the central figure in all human history. His life and His teachings are the heart of the Bible and the other books we consider to be holy scriptures. The Old Testament sets the stage for Christ's mortal ministry. The New Testament describes His mortal ministry. The Book of Mormon gives us a second witness of His mortal ministry. He came to earth to declare His gospel as a foundation for all mankind so that all of God's children could learn about Him and His teachings. He then gave His life to be our Savior and Redeemer. Only through Jesus Christ is salvation possible. This is why we believe He is that central figure in all human history. Our eternal destiny is always in His hands. It is a glorious thing to believe in Him and accept Him as our Savior, our Lord, and our Master. We also believe that it is possible through Christ to find the ultimate contentment, hope, and happiness, both in this life and in the eternities. Our doctrine, as taught in the Book of Mormon, emphatically states, Wherefore, ye must press forward in a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if you shall press forward, feasting on the words of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. We declare our belief in Jesus Christ and accept Him as our Savior. He will bless us and guide us through all of our efforts. As we labor here in mortality, He will strengthen us and bring us peace in time of trials. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints walk by faith in Him whose Church it is. Second, be righteous examples to others. After our declaration of our beliefs, we must follow the counsel given to us in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. Be thou an example of believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The Savior taught about the importance of being an example in our faith by saying, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Our lives should be examples of goodness and virtue as we try to emulate His example to the world. Good works by each of us can do credit both to the Savior and His Church. As you engage in doing good, being honorable, upright men and women, the light of Christ will be reflected by your lives. 
Next, speak up about the Church. In our course of our everyday lives, we are blessed with many opportunities to share our beliefs with others. When our professional and personal associates inquire about our religious beliefs, they are inviting us to share who we are and what we believe. They may or may not be interested in the Church, but they are interested in getting to know us at a deeper level. My recommendation to you is to accept their invitations. Your associates are not inviting you to teach, preach, expound, or exhort. Engage them in two-way conversation. Share something about your religious beliefs, but also ask them about their beliefs. Gauge the level of interest by the questions they ask. If they are asking a lot of questions, focus the conversation on answering those questions. Always remember that it is better for them to ask than you to tell. Some members seem to want to keep their membership in the Church a secret. They have their reasons. For example, they may believe that it is not their place to share their beliefs. Perhaps they are fearful they might make a mistake or be asked a question they can't answer. To such thoughts, if such thoughts ever run through your head, I have some advice for you. Simply remember the words of John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. If we simply love God and love our neighbors, we are promised that we will overcome our fears. If you are visiting mormon.org lately, which is the Church website to those interested in learning about the Church, you have seen members upload information about themselves. They are creating online profiles that explain who they are and why their religious beliefs are important to them. They are speaking up about their faith. We should appreciate and approach such conversations with Christ-like love. Our tone, whether speaking or writing, should be respectful and civil, regardless of the response of others. We should be honest and open and try to clear up in what be clear in what we say. We want to avoid becoming defensive or argue in any way. The Apostle Paul explained, that Apostle Peter explained, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Today's manner of conversation seems to involve the Internet more and more. We encourage people, young and old, to use the Internet and the social medias to reach out and share their religious beliefs. As you, realize the, as you utilize the Internet, you may come across ongoing conversations about the Church. When directed by the Spirit, do not hesitate to add your voice to these conversations. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else you will share with others. In the information age, it is the most important and valuable information in all the world. There is no question about its worth. It is a pearl of great price. In speaking about the Church, we do not try to make it sound better than it is. We do not need to put a spin on our message. We need to communicate the message honestly and directly. 
if we will open communication channels, the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ will prove itself to those who are prepared to receive it. There is sometimes a wide difference, a gulf of understanding between the way we experience the Church from the inside and the way the others look at, from the, look at it from the outside. This is the principal reason we hold temp- open houses for temples before each dedication is taken care of. The, members, the member volunteers at the temple open houses are simply trying to help others see the Church as they see it from the inside. They recognize the Church as a marvelous work, even a wonder, and they want others to know it too. I ask you to do the same. I promise you, if you will respond to the invitation to share your beliefs and feelings with the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, a spirit of love, a spirit of courage will be your constant companion. For perfect love casteth out fear. This is the time of expanding opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. May we prepare ourselves to take advantage of the opportunities given to us to share our beliefs. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Book of Mormon contains the account of a man named Nehor. It's easy to understand why Mormon, in abridging a thousand years of Nephite records, thought it important to include something about this man and the enduring influence of his doctrine. Mormon was seeking to warn us, knowing that this philosophy would surface again in our day. Nehor appeared on the scene about 90 years before the birth of Christ. He taught that all mankind should be saved at the last day. For the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. About fifteen years later, Korahor came among the Nephites, preaching and amplifying the doctrine of Nehor. The Book of Mormon records that he was anti-Christ, for he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. Korahor's preaching was to the effect that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men, but every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime. These false prophets and their followers did not believe in the repentance of their sins. As in the days of Nehor and Korahor, we live in a time not long before the advent of Jesus Christ, in our case, the time of preparation for His second coming. And similarly, the message of repentance is often not welcomed. Some profess that if there is a God, He makes no real demands upon us. Others maintain that a loving God forgives all sin based on simple confession. Or if there actually is a punishment for sin, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Others, with Korahor, deny the very existence of Christ and any such thing as sin. Their doctrine is that values, standards, and even truth are all relative. 
Thus, whatever one feels is right for him or her cannot be judged by others to be wrong or sinful. On the surface, such philosophies seem appealing because they give us license to indulge any appetite or desire without concern for consequences. By using the teachings of Nihor and Korahor, we can rationalize and justify anything. When prophets come crying repentance, it throws cold water on the party. But in reality, the prophetic call should be received with joy. Without repentance, there is no real progress or improvement in life. Pretending there is no sin does not lessen its burden and pain. Suffering for sin does not by itself change anything for the better. Only repentance leads to the sunlit uplands of a better life. And, of course, only through repentance do we gain access to the atoning grace of Jesus Christ and salvation. Repentance is a divine gift, and there should be a smile on our faces when we speak of it. See, I'm smiling. (laughs) It points us to freedom and confidence and peace. Rather than interrupting the celebration, the gift of repentance is the cause for true celebration. Repentance exists as an option only because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. It is His infinite sacrifice that bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. Repentance is the necessary condition, and the grace of Christ is the power by which mercy can satisfy the demands of justice. Our witness is this. We know that justification, or forgiveness of sins, through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification, or purification from the effects of sin, through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. Repentance is an expansive subject, but today I'd like to mention just five aspects of this fundamental gospel principle that I hope will be helpful. First, the invitation to repent is an expression of love. When the Savior began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was a message of love, inviting all who would to qualify to join Him and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life itself in the world to come. If we do not invite others to change, or if we do not demand repentance of ourselves, we fail in a fundamental duty we owe to one another and to ourselves. A permissive parent, an indulgent friend, a fearful Church leader are in reality more concerned about themselves than the welfare and happiness of those they could help. Yes, the call to repentance is at times regarded as intolerant or offensive and may even be resented. But guided by the Spirit, it is in reality an act of genuine caring. Second, repentance means striving to change. It would mock the Savior's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross for us to expect that He should transform us into angelic beings with no real effort on our part. Rather, we seek His grace 
to complement and reward our most diligent efforts. Perhaps as much as for mercy, we should pray for time and opportunity to work and strive and overcome. Surely the Lord smiles upon one who desires to come to judgment worthily, who resolutely labors day by day to replace weakness with strength. Real repentance, real change may require repeated attempts, but there is something refining and holy in such striving. Divine forgiveness and healing flow quite naturally to such a soul. For indeed, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, and mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own. With repentance we can steadily improve in our capacity to live the celestial law. For we recognize that he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. Third, repentance means not only abandoning sin but committing to obedience. The Bible Dictionary states, Repentance comes to mean a turning of the heart and will to God, as well as a renunciation of sin, to which we are naturally inclined. One of several examples of this teaching from the Book of Mormon is found in the words of Alma to one of his sons. Therefore I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that ye refrain from your iniquities, that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength. For our turning to the Lord to be complete, it must include nothing less than a covenant of obedience to Him. We often speak of this covenant as the baptismal covenant, since it is witnessed by being baptized in water. The Savior's own baptism, providing the example, confirmed His covenant of obedience to the Father. But notwithstanding He being holy, He showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh He humbleth Himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that He would be obedient unto Him in keeping His commandments. Without this covenant, repentance remains incomplete and the remission of sins unattained. In the memorable expression of Professor Noel Reynolds, the choice to repent is a choice to burn bridges in every direction, having determined to follow forever only one way, the one path that leads to eternal life. Fourth, repentance requires a seriousness of purpose and a willingness to persevere even through pain. Attempts to create a list of specific steps of repentance may be helpful to some, but it may also lead to a mechanical check-off-the-boxes approach with no real feeling or change. True repentance is not superficial. The Lord gives two overarching requirements. By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Confessing and forsaking are powerful concepts. They are much more than a casual, I admit it, I'm sorry. It's a deep, sometimes agonizing acknowledgement of error and offense to God and man. Sorrow and regret and bitter tears often accompany one's confession, especially when his or her actions have been the cause of pain to someone, or worse, have led another into sin. 
It is this deep distress, this view of things as they really are, that leads one, as Alma, to cry out, O Jesus, Thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. With faith in the merciful Redeemer and His power, potential despair turns to hope. One's very heart and desires change, and the once appealing sin becomes increasingly abhorrent. A resolve to abandon and forsake the sin and to repair as fully as one possibly can the damage he or she has caused now forms in that new heart. This resolve soon matures into a covenant of obedience to God, and with that covenant in place, the Holy Ghost, the divine messenger of grace, will bring relief and forgiveness. One is moved to declare again with Alma, And, oh, what joy and what marvelous light I do behold! Yea, my soul is filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Any pain entailed in repentance will always be far less than the suffering required to satisfy justice for unresolved transgression. The Savior spoke little about what He endured to satisfy the demands of justice and atone for our sins, but He did make this revealing statement, Behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup. Fifth, whatever the cost of repentance, it is swallowed up in the joy of forgiveness. In a general conference address entitled The Brilliant Morning of Forgiveness, President Boyd K. Packer provided this analogy. In April of 1847, Brigham Young led the first company of pioneers out of winter quarters. At that same time, 1,600 miles to the west, the pathetic survivors of the Donner Party straggled down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains into the Sacramento Valley. They had spent the ferocious winter trapped in the snowdrifts below the summit. That any survived the days and weeks and months of starvation and indescribable suffering is almost beyond belief. Among them was 15-year-old John Breen. On the night of April 24, he walked into Johnson's ranch. Years later, John wrote, It was long after dark when we got to Johnson's ranch, so the first time I saw it was early in the morning. The weather was fine. The ground was covered with green grass. The birds were singing from the tops of the trees, and the journey was over. I could scarcely believe that I was alive. The scene that I saw that morning seems to be photographed on my mind. Most of the incidents are gone from memory, but I can always see the camp near Johnson's Ranch. Said President Packer, at first I was very puzzled by his statement that most of the incidents are gone from memory. How could long months of incredible suffering and sorrow ever be gone from his mind? How could that brutal dark winter be replaced with one brilliant morning? On further reflection, I decided it was not puzzling at all. 
I've seen something similar happen to people I have known. I've seen some who've spent a long winter of guilt and spiritual starvation emerge into the morning of forgiveness. When morning came, they learned this, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. I gratefully acknowledge and testify that the incomprehensible suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord bringeth to pass the condition of repentance. The divine gift of repentance is the key to happiness here and hereafter. In the Savior's words and in deep humility and love, I invite all to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I know that in accepting this invitation, you will find joy both now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.